In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In his often overlooked essay, Meditations in a Tool Shed, C.S. Lewis observes the difference between two ways of knowing something. Quote, I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside, and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. And then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and, above all, no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences." End quote. The difference that Lewis observes in his essay of looking at and looking along are helpful illustrations of what it can mean to know something. Knowledge is an icon of the truth, one of the transcendental ways we experience what is real, what is or has being. Knowledge can be one of the ways we experience God by experiencing something he has made in a way that is like the way he knows it to be. As Lewis notes, we can know something by looking at it. With the light beam in the tool shed, this looking at might have yielded an apparent point of origin, a general vector, an approximate luminosity. Looking at precedes looking along by capturing our sight, which tends to roam, and then guiding our approach to a single point. But knowledge remains incomplete from a distance. Knowledge requires personal participation. At some point, knowledge is active and relational. It is not just about what is to be known, but also about how it is to be known. It is only by looking along that one might experience the light beam, to know from within its whole existence all at once, including, at some point, the unsearchable fusion reaction in the sun that makes the beam so distantly possible. But good luck explaining that to someone who is not looking from within the beam. It is into this transformative dialogue between looking at and looking along, that Jesus invites the Pharisee Nicodemus in our gospel lesson. Nicodemus comes in the darkness to Jesus by night, not to inquire, but to inform Jesus that the Pharisees have him figured out. They have determined him to be a teacher like them, who, despite his unfortunate lack of formal training, nevertheless seems to be authorized by a special power coming from God, probably like one of the prophets of old. In other words, they have settled on a satisfying hypothesis to explain Jesus and his ministry, one that puts them on his level, 
and one that assuages any fear that something beyond their comprehension might be happening. To this false confidence, however, Jesus responds by stating that the kingdom of God cannot be seen unless one is born again by water and the Holy Spirit. That much of what is happening before their eyes is actually invisible to them because they have not yet been given through these means the sight that they need to perceive him. They have looked at Jesus and perceived truly to their credit that he is a teacher, that he is from God. But even though they have spoken correctly and are informed to a point, they have missed what is essential. Nicodemus then more wisely asks a question. Though one still flawed by the attempt to preserve his own dignity by pointing out the impossibility of Jesus' statement. But rather than address his loaded question, Jesus instead takes Nicodemus further into that something that he cannot yet perceive, unfolding to him how it is the Spirit's mission to regenerate and then illuminate those who are given to know the kingdom of God. In his ponderous metaphor of likening the Spirit to the wind, Jesus then, in, uh, and then indicates what is Nicodemus' real problem of understanding, that he has been as one who has perceived what is moved around by the wind, the dust on the ground, the leaves and the trees, and has concluded that he now understands what wind is. Likewise, with Jesus, Nicodemus and his Pharisee colleagues have seen the signs but have failed to grasp what is moving the signs of the Father sending his Son to reveal a kingdom that is revealed by signs performed in the Spirit. Nicodemus then asks his first honest question. How can all this be? And to that honest question, Jesus begins to orient Nicodemus from looking at to looking along with him, begins to heal Nicodemus's ability to see him. For the first time in the dialogue, Nicodemus is willing to be silent and to be taught. And in that silence, the word of God speaks and speaks of how the only one who can reveal the kingdom is the one who has seen it for himself and has come with that knowledge to teach it and to gather into it all who will believe in it. Jesus underscores this lesson of having new sight by drawing on an image, the image of the bronze serpent made by Moses in Numbers chapter 21. Quote, the people then came to Moses and said, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. And when anyone who, who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. And whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake and he recovered. 
as it was through repentance and seeing and believing that those who were bitten were healed. So it is by the same activity, the same receiving, seeing, believing, that those who receive Jesus Christ will receive the eternal life of God. Good symbols and signs are the crossroads of looking at and looking along. They help us to see in a new way by arresting our attention and then by inviting us into deeper consideration. The signs and symbols of the church, beginning with the sacraments and then proceeding through the multi-sensory ways we speak of the kingdom of God among us, these guide our vision, not only in terms of content, but also in terms of method. The liturgy itself that we are all participating in right now, as a symbolic action, draws us into the posture of the ideal worshiper who, if we were honest, is probably none of us individually. One who humbly approaches, who earnestly confesses, but then who, with complete gratitude, receives the gift given. Good symbols are attractive, but they are also deferential. They draw our attention, but then they direct it beyond themselves. The bronze serpent in the wilderness was not salvation of itself, but became the objective place where salvation could be received. The bronze figure, of course, anticipated Jesus, the one in whom all true symbols find their ultimate referent. And Jesus, being the incarnate Son, became himself the place where the fullness of God the Trinity could be seen, and from whom they could be received if one came to them with a willing heart. So it is that in our formation as Christians here at the outset of this long season of Trinity Tide, that we cannot begin to perceive the truth of God unless we dispense with our egos and look again at the first things. We must return to what the Lord has said and done himself and through his apostles. We must return to the creed and practice of the faith that they handed down and that has been passed hand to hand down through the generations. But if we are really serious about these things, it will not be long before we are invited to look along, to participate in that faith. We must receive through scripture and sacrament that new life by water and the spirit through which we will be born again and made able to see the kingdom of God. Through Easter and through Pentecost, we have been renewed by water and the Holy Spirit and some of us even received these graces for the first time in those seasons. But in these beginnings are also their endings. Easter always ushers us on steadily towards the resurrection, and Pentecost lights the way to the vision of the triune God himself and nowhere else. The real presence of Christ in the sacraments secures them as signs for remembrance and growth until the time of signs ends, and then there is only the unmediated face of Jesus Christ and the worship of heaven that the face of Jesus always evokes.
as St. Augustine said of the end of all things, quote, there we shall rest and we shall see. We shall see and we shall love. We shall love and we shall praise. Eventually, the kingdom of this world and the ways it intermingles with and at times obscures the work of the kingdom of God is going to end. Trinity Sunday bears with it the eager hope of Christ's second and glorious appearing. And though this season is long, Advent will surely come. And we begin to live out now the moment when each of us will meet that Advent. We begin to practice this morning how we will fitly meet him, whether as those who only looked at him and settled for what could be safely known from afar, or as those who sought to be turned to look along with him, who drew as near as possible to him at all times, and who opened up every door of the heart to receive his truth, his justice, and his mercy. In the words of St. John, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <laughs>